In the introduction to his book, Lifelines, the late Unitarian Universalist minister, the Reverend Forrest Church, reveals a letter that was anonymously slipped under his church study door. It read, Dear Mr. Church, what is the meaning of adversity? I don't think I can handle it anymore. Nothing seems to go right in my life. I am very tired of this stupid life. If you know the reason for suffering or pain or adversity, please tell me. I know people do not always have an answer, and I know other people overcome diversity, but I am tired. I feel absolutely hopeless. Is there a God or is there not a God? If I feel there is not a God, what is the sense of going on? And for whom? I know this letter sounds crazy, but I am tired of it. Signed, a parishioner. Of course, it is not only parishioners that are perplexed. I used to work with another minister who always began Sunday morning before services by saying to me, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> Most Sundays, like some magical mantra, that minister would chant the phrase and then love his congregation to death. Now, some said it was his preaching that could suck the life out of congregants. But life is just too short. Life is too short. You and I only get a brief moment, a few brief moments to live this in this world. Just a blip on the cosmic screen. And yet we may even confound ourselves with our ability to make these moments tragic. Like Mr. Church's parishioner, or another church's minister, we may actually get comfortable with the hopelessness of humanity. To make life matter would mean leaving our comfort zones. Carl Jung once observed, act one of a young man's life is the story of his setting out to conquer the world. Act two is the story of a young man realizing that the world is not about to be conquered by the likes of him. And so we are set on life's path, crawling from the cradle to the corporate ladder to compete, to win, to strive, and endure at any cost, at all costs, lest we not make a mark on the world, lest the world not take us seriously, lest our life will not matter. For the record, Forrest Church wrote his book, Lifelines, in response to the sad letter that was slipped under his office door with the hope that its author may read it. Now, while time does not permit a book-length response this morning, to which many of you are thinking, thank God, <laughs> what I will do is offer my own response, one that differs somewhat from my late colleague 
and friend. Fall is a season that thrusts matters into our own hands and insists that every day of work and worry counts for something. For there are a myriad of ways to make life matter. But I believe those that are most effective are founded on choice. That is, we must choose to make life matter. This is not something someone else can do for us. No lover, no child, no leader, no church, no God can make our lives matter if we do not take action through informed choice. If you leave life's journey to chance, it's likely that your life will not matter. You know, it amazes me as a theist myself, that so many theists insist that the universe loves them and deserves them because they deserve the universe. Not because the universe and so many people in their lives are gracious enough to put up with them. <laughs> to which I respond in the most pastoral manner, get over yourself. <laughs> To get over ourselves, this may be the best choice we can make. Actually, choosing to get over oneself is the very first choice we must make if we are to make our life matter. But what do I mean by this popularized insult? The opening of Charles Dickens' David Copperfield has its protagonist insisting whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by someone else, these pages must show. Like Copperfield, we may yearn to be the star of our own show or the, or the savior of our own life, but most of us will never attain such billing. But just because others will be at the helm of the wheel of life doesn't necessarily mean we will not be taking important turns along the way. It simply means that the limelight may elude us. As a minister, this is one lesson I have learned that makes my life matter. I do not see the ministry as a viable way to move up any ladder, to become famous, or to rule the world. Colleagues who approach ministry with such machinations often suffer huge defeat when their fallibility catches up to their over-ripened imaginations. Instead, I see the minister as one whose goal is to work herself out of a job. That is, an effective minister empowers the congregation to be ministers to themselves and to, one and to others to the extent that the minister is no longer needed. Fortunately for my family, as well as my creditors, that day has yet to arrive during my vocational lifetime. It was Eric Erickson who pointed out that people must choose between what he calls stagnation and generativity. 
He defines stagnation as only thinking about ourselves. How do I feel today? What part of me aches? Who calls me and who ignores me? Like all modern day messiahs, they confuse self-centeredness with salvation. Generativity, on the other hand, is concerned about the next generation and what we are leaving them. It puts the spotlight on the future rather than on the fan club. It is not concerned with who is named in the credits. It puts the ultimate value on the message and not the messenger. To choose to get over oneself, to choose generativity over stagnation, is to embody humility. Once we get over ourselves, we encounter the objectivity it takes to be humble. Humility is one of the characteristics of a life that matters. Second, choose to win by losing. Now, if there is anything countercultural in modern day America, it is to be a big loser. At the heart of this resides the need we all share to hear the message that we are good. Dr. Jerome Kagan, in his wonderful work, Three Seductive Ideas, writes, the desire to believe that oneself is ethically worthy is universal. He points out that children as young as two years of age evaluate their behavior in terms of right and wrong and need to think of themselves as good. Without that innate moral sense, Kagan believes, children cannot be socialized. The dilemma develops when, in order to garner society's seal of approval, we must cheat to win. A little lie here, a few manipulations there, some intentional neglect and some inventive nuance, but no one really gets hurt. It's all just part of the game. The culture's voice then praises our good achievements, while our inner voice challenges our methodology. On the streets, we're a winner, but in the mirror lurks a loser. This may be the central contradiction in the lives of so many of us. We want and need to think of ourselves as good people, as winners. Though from time to time, we find ourselves doing things that makes us doubt our own goodness. In our quest for victory, and therefore in our quest for significance, we often litter the world with our mistakes more than we bless it with our accomplishments. Too often, it seems, we, we compromise our integrity. We do something that we really don't believe in doing to reach some important goal, only to find out one of two frustrating things happening. Either we gain the prize and realize it was not worth gaining, or we end up with neither the prize nor our integrity. But we know how easy it is, with practice, to ignore the voice of conscience, which some call the still small voice within. 
the Talmud, says that at first a bad habit enters our lives as an invited guest, but before long it becomes a member of the family and ultimately ends up taking over the whole house. And we feel we have lost a precious part of who we are and who we want to be. Consider also the literary tradition of the trickster, the hero who defeats his opponents by cleverness rather than strength. This tradition includes the Norse god Loki, Homer's Odysseus, the first people nation's Coyote, and the Hebrew scriptures Jacob. In all of these stories, in the tradition of the trickster, the moral morality of cleverness and wit collides with the morality of right and wrong, and we become uncomfortable with the gains the hero makes by devious means. Yes, the trickster usually wins the day, but loses one of life's most important and priceless gifts. The perpetual trickster loses trust. What kind of life can a person have in a world where they can neither trust nor be trusted? Such winners often live alone in the broadest sense of the word. Abraham Joshua Herschel sums it up for us. He says, when I was young, he recalls, I admired clever people. As I grew old, I came to admire kind people. Winners are enslaved by their duplicitousness. Losers are liberated by their wholeness. Wholeness is one of the characteristics of a life that matters. Finally, to make life matter, choose your friends over your family. Now listen closely, for in saying this, I do not mean to denigrate familial relations. Rather, I want to lift up the unique bond that only friendship offers. Perhaps one of my favorite definitions of a friend will make the point. Friends are people who know you at your worst and like you anyway. <laughs> to expand on this a little further, Friends are people in whose company you can be yourself. A friend often knows what you need before you do. Perhaps more than anything else, friends are people who care about you and wonder about who you are and not looking for something you can do for them. Friends are the folk with whom you really want to celebrate the holidays. Now, if this describes a family member, you are truly blessed. But if the chairs in my study could talk, they would tattle a very different tale. In the book, I Know What You Mean, authors Ellen Goodman and Patricia O'Brien discuss what their friendship means to them. They write, Friendship has no biological purpose, no economic status, no evolutionary meaning. But a new friend can reintroduce a woman to herself, 
allowing her to look at herself with a new pair of eyes and a different mindset. Flaws can be recast as strengths. Self-doubts are lifted by acceptance. Friends are more likely than family to encourage change. Think about that for a moment. The capacity for friendship is a gift to be shared. It takes more than one person to validate our sense of mattering in the world. In fact, friendships are a key to survival in an unfriendly culture. Friends are a means for us to be recognized as unique people and to be reassured that we are appreciated for who we are. Returning to the image of a mirror, genuine friendships are a mirror reflecting back to us a flattering image of ourselves. I would be remiss as a minister if I did not point out that true friendship is a sacrament, for it accomplishes what organized religion only tries to do, to make sure that we are never alone when we desperately need not to be alone. Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way, the glory of friendship is not in the outstretched hand or even in the kindly smile. It is in the spiritual inspiration that comes when you discover that someone else believes in you and is willing to trust you with their friendship. To take time for friendships is to take time to be holy. Holiness is one of the characteristics of a life that matters. Humility, wholeness, holiness, they are present in every life that matters. It is December, a month of endings and new beginnings. It's a good time to begin to start a journey, a journey from pride to humil humility, from duplicity to wholeness, from ambivalence to holiness. These are the first steps toward a life that matters to the glory of life. Today's offering in its entirety